0: Well, this morning we want to continue our study of the book of Acts with Acts chapter 18, 23 through 19 verse 10. And our topic is Paul returns to Ephesus. So just a quick review of where we've been. We started in chapter one of the book of Acts with Jesus' message about the kingdom. He made it very clear. This was his message. This was the core of his message, the heart of his message. This was the essence of his message. This was his message. When he is alive between his resurrection and ascension, this is what he talked about was the kingdom of God. Now, there are obviously a lot of nuances. And as you go through the book of Acts, you will see these nuances of what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. But repeatedly throughout the book, he reminds us that the kingdom of God is the message. Acts 1, 3, uh, 3 and 6, Acts 8, 12, Acts 14, 22, 19, 8, 20, 25, 28, 23, and 31. All of these different texts, these are specific, explicit references to the message of the kingdom. To fulfill the message of the kingdom of God requires divine empowerment. And the seminal mandate to the apostles at the very beginning in Acts 1, 8 was, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And let me just remind you that to be a witness is not what we normally think it is. We normally think of a witness as somebody sharing their story about how they chose Christ. That's our common day thinking. That's a popular way of thinking about it. It is not the biblical way. This biblical idea of witnessing here is referring to the ability that the original apostles alone had to bear witness of the resurrection of Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. No one else was an eyewitness, at least among us. There were people back then, roughly 500 people, that were witnesses of him that we know of, but it's these 12 that are selected by God to be empowered and to be able to testify that Jesus is alive. So that's the key we have to understand. That's the empowerment he's referring to in Acts 1-8. There are many people uh, that believe Acts 1-8 was fulfilled by the apostles and the apostle Paul. Paul was added to the list and between the, the, those those men, among those men, everything that God wanted to do, through Acts one eight, it was to be His witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That was accomplished through them. So when we see that, it just it transforms our thinking about things like what we call the Great Commission, Acts. Um, excuse me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. In that text, uh, it's a mandate given to the 11 apostles, and it's a mandate to go. It's to go and to recognize who the Holy Spirit's working with, and then to baptize those when you see signs of evidence of transformation, which is evidence that the Holy Spirit's regenerated them, and then you train them to obey the commands of Christ. So that's what you saw the apostles, and Paul did, and that's the record of the book of Acts, is that truth of that testimony going out. The early church believed that was fulfilled then. Acts eight twenty eight, excuse me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 was fulfilled by the original apostles and Paul, and that was done. And now our job as followers of Christ is to wherever we're planted to live as disciples. And that would be then used by the Holy Spirit as light to bring others to Christ. So that's the the backdrop, the context in which we're in. So let's get in and take a look at where we are here in Acts chapter 18, 23 through 19, 10, and see what uh, the Holy Spirit wants to say to us this morning uh, out of this text. I'm gonna read the text and then I'm gonna go back through and I'll break it down into pieces. So Acts 18, 23 starts with, after some time there, He, this is referring to Paul, set out. He is in Antioch after his second journey. He spent some time there. We don't know how much time he he spent there. Was it months? Was it years? It's not known. So he stayed in Antioch after his second journey, returning from his second journey for a period of time. And then he sets out again, traveling from one place to another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, if you remember from the first and second journeys, what he did and where he went, he went back to a lot of places he went on on those two journeys. And this time he's not going as an evangelist so much. I'm sure he did evangelism, but he went largely to strengthen all the disciples. That is, strengthening means to unify them around the message of Christ, that Jesus is Lord and Christ. So that's what he's doing. He's going out and going and making context with the disciples. Did he go to some synagogues? Probably did. That seems to be a common thing he did. He went to where he would find people who respected the word of God and begin to give give them fresh revelation about the word of God in light of the truth that Jesus is Lord in Christ. So he did that everywhere he went. So I suspect he did that on this journey. But the. The text does not emphasize that, doesn't even mention it. It mentions he goes to strengthen the disciples. That's where he starts. Now there's a parenthesis here. Now a man named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. So remember Paul's last stop before he returned to Jerusalem was in Ephesus and Priscilla and Aquila had accompanied him and he, he left them there. And so he went back to Jerusalem and eventually back to Antioch. That was on a second journey. And so Priscilla and Aquila are still in Ephesus. And here comes this Alexandria. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he only knew John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And after Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he wanted to go cross over to Achaia, which is where Corinth was, Corinth was in Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And after he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. He didn't save anybody. They're saved by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. But he, was, he helped them. And the way he helped them was he helped unify their thinking about Christ for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public. You know, the marker of a real Christian leader is can you teach truth, sound truth, and can you refute, refute error? Well, clearly, Apollos could do both of those. He vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrated through the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Acts 19, 1 through 10, you'll notice that verses 24 through 28, I put a parenthesis around it. That parenthesis that you see in the, in the slide, I put that in there to stress this seems to be a little break because Acts 19.1 seems to be a continuation of after Acts 18.23. Okay, so now we go back to Paul. For while Paulus was in Corinth, he was in a K in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples. Whose disciples were they? That's a question we'll discuss in a minute. And asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And to what then were you baptized? He asked them, Into John's baptism, he replied. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they, that is the disciples, heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other tongues and to prophesy. Now, there were about 12 men in all, so that's the discussion of the 12. Now, we're going to go to another theme here. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. You know, when you think about you, talking about the word of God, the, the word about Christ, the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ, those kinds of things, most of us don't really think about the kingdom. It's because we don't have a really robust biblical view of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of the king. And God is working, has been working in his plan of redemption since the fall to restore his uncontested rule. Everything that is part of that is the kingdom of God. He's go, he is king and he rules. And even though there's rebellion, the rebellion does not thwart his will. And in the final analysis, the rebellion will be totally thwarted. The uncontested rule will be restored. So there's a lot of nuances about this Paul shared vigorously in the, in the synagogue, arguing and persuading, which means some of them heard him and listened. But when some became hardened and would not believe, not everybody heard and listened, some rebelled. And they slandered the way in front of the crowd. He withdrew from them, taking the disciples, and he conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now let's begin, let's go back to verse 23 and let's start all over and really talk more in detail about what the text is saying to us. Remember Paul starting his third journey. After spending some time there in Antioch, he set out, he traveled from one place to another in Galatian and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples, building up the body of Christ. That seems to suggest that the real important work that we need to be doing is strengthening the disciples. We don't live at a time when the word of God has not been spread out. It's been spread all over this planet. And that's been going on for 2,000 years. So this is probably a good point a good pattern for us when we are sent out going out we go out to those that we have relationship with we're connected with and we strengthen them to hopefully make them stronger in Christ now a man named apollos this begins our parenthetical phrase from verse 24 to 28 this man this jew named apollos a native of alexandrian an eloquent man who was competent in the use of scriptures arrived in ephesus he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and was fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, though he knew only John's baptism. So let's just talk about Ap- Apollos for a second. What do we know about Apollos? Number one, he was a Jew. So a Jew is someone who's biblically literate. And the one, the most orthodox ones, the ones that showed up at the synagogue, they're devoted. They're showing up to know how to, to learn how to live. You see, Christianity is a lifestyle. It's not a ticket to heaven. It's not a fire insurance policy. It is a lifestyle. It's life-defining based on scripture. So here you have Apollos, a Jew, a biblically literate Jew devoted to scripture from Alexandria. Now this was a well-known city of learning. So it's very possible that when it says here that Apollos was eloquent, he was perhaps a scholar. And when it says he was competent in, in teaching scripture, that suggests that he had the power. The word they're competent comes from a derivative of dunamos, which means power. So he had the power to do this. He was eloquent. He was skilled. He was someone that commanded respect. He spoke with authority. Next thing we know about Apollos was he was instructed. You know, today we have a lot of people that think that being self-taught is adequate. Well, um, uh, you can only go so far being self-taught. We all need to be catechized. This word here for instructed is a word translated, if you were literally translated, we translate it catechized. Catechized means that we're instructed in how to live the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. So the way of the Lord is a lifestyle that we're called to live, where Christ is life defining of everything. All the distinctions of life we look to Christ to make those distinctions. In the creation account of Genesis 1, you see right out of the box, God not only created everything, he creates with distinction. He separates. Distinctions are to make separation. We distinguish this from that, light from darkness, you know, land from sea, earth from sky, animals from, from humans. These distinctions are what God has put in His universe. What you see in a, in a world driven by the spirit of Antichrist is they try to destroy, destroy God's distinctions. When you're properly catechized, you understand God's distinctions, God's definitions, God's norms. That's what drives you. He was catechized. And based on scripture, and largely under, understanding at least what the re- revelation John the Baptist had. And remember John the Baptist was the greatest in the Old covenant. Jesus said that in Matthew eleven, that those are born among women, no one is greater than John the Baptist, you know, up to that time, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's Matthew eleven eleven. So John the Baptist had, the greatest form of revelation under the old covenant. He, the, the, Apollos had that level of revelation and he knew it well. He could speak it accurately. He spoke it fervently. He spoke with great skill and authority. He had all that, but he lacked something. He didn't have the fullness of Acts 2.36 and what that meant. And so when Priscilla and Aquila hear him, they recognize there's something missing. So verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and Priscilla and Aquila, they hear him, and they took him aside, which means they're going to correct him. They're not going to do it publicly. They're going to do it privately and explain the way of God to him more accurately. You see, he had already—he was already competent in the scriptures and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, verse 25, but verse 26, he gets more accurate information and understanding about the way of God. So in both uses, the word accurately is used. It's the same word. It's just, you can see, you can be very accurate in the revelation that you have, but you still may need more. And I think that's true of all of us. No one has it all. We all are learning and growing. We're works in process, and so we have to learn how to live in that reality. So, this is a he's a great example for all of us. All of us, on some level, will experience what Apollos experienced, or should, if we're really growing, because the Lord will send a Priscilla and Aquila into our lives and saying, "Well, you know." You yeah, you got a pretty good understanding, but it needs here's a little correction you need. Now we don't know exactly what it was about John's message that was incomplete. John knew about the power of the Holy Spirit. He knew Jesus would be the purveyor of that power. Maybe he didn't understand the nuance of it. He didn't understand regeneration or the indwelling empowerment of the spirit. He may not have understood that. We don't know exactly what John didn't understand. But whatever it was, Priscilla and Aquila understood that from Paul, and now they imparted that to Apollos. So he became even more skilled. And so he felt apparently led, I presume he felt led to go across to Achaia, to the brothers and sisters. And... So what happened is they he got a letter from the, the believers there in Ephesus, and apparently that letter was credible. When he took it over to Corinth, they received him and accepted him. When he arrived, he was a great help, and the idea of being a great help is someone that's really giving clarity of thought, helping people understand for the purpose of obe- obedience. One of the key things you have to understand about what a real disciple is, is someone who listens to learn for the purpose of acting. Disciples not don't just don't build up head knowledge. They learn so they can live better. And so that's what he apparently did. He went over there and he helped them think better so they could live better. That's helping those who have been regenerated by grace they have believed. In other words, he didn't save anybody no one saves anybody. The Holy Spirit is the one that regenerates and gets us into the process of salvation. The mark of regeneration will be sanctification. You see people changing, being transformed. You come alongside them, and you see what the Holy Spirit might have you do to help them grow in their capacity by experiencing more transformation through more understanding of truth. So that's what he did. So, and then in the process, he refutes. He refutes the Jews publicly demonstrating from the scripture that Jesus is the Christ. So, powerful man of God, it's great, great example for all of us of how we all need to continually grow and get more and more accurate. Hopefully, whatever we deliver now is accurate based on what we know now, but tomorrow, I know it better and I'm more accurate. What a great picture for all of us. Okay, going on to chapter 19, verse 1, Paul now has, uh, we're picking up from the prior chapter, verse 23 in the prior chapter, while Paulus goes to Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. Who are these disciples? Now, the word disciple is used four times in the text that we're talking about today, That is between chapter 18.23 and 19.10. It shows up four times. Three times, it's very clear. It's clearly the disciples of Christ. But who are the disciples here in chapter 19, verse 1? You know, it's the same word in all the cases, but in this case, the context is interesting. If they're disciples of Christ, then they're regenerate. If they're disciples of John, then they may not be regenerate. Now it's important distinction to make because this is a text that's used a lot to talk about the so-called you know second blessing, and we'll talk about that when we talk on our theology point in a second. But right now the important thing is to say be asking the question who the disciples are, and then he asked them, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" And they said, "No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit." Now that's strange because John told them. That this guy, would just Jesus, who's coming after me, will baptize you in power. So it seems that, you know, he should have seen that, but maybe they didn't quite understood it. There was confusion. They didn't quite get it. So sometimes disciples don't fully understand everything necessarily that the disciples tried to say. That's important to know because all of us, you know, we, we see through glass darkly and we make mistakes. And we have to know, we have to know that maybe we don't quite get it. We don't quite understand it and be open to correction, to more revelation. So we haven't heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul asked, into what then were you baptized? And John's baptism is what they said. So that's why it looks like they were disciples of John. This is not referring to disciples of Jesus, but disciples of John, which that becomes very difficult for those that want to talk about a second blessing, because this is probably the best text that might be used to try to argue for a second blessing, but it's a flawed, I think you're going to see when we talk about the theology, it's a flawed argument. So unto John's baptism, they replied, Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, meaning change your thinking, change your thinking about yourself. You can't earned your way into acceptance with God. You cannot self-save. You need a Savior. Change your thinking. And you didn't realize you need to be born again. I don't know that he got that. He got there. You know, certainly Nicodemus didn't get there. That was one of the things that Jesus criticized him for. But here they're confused. They don't know what this means. They clearly are confused. And they're identifying themselves with John's message and a truncated understanding of it. So Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is in Jesus. John is pointing to Jesus. John is not the way. John is not the truth. John is not the life. John is simply saying, prepare yourself. Uh, Deeper revelation's coming. Receive that revelation. That's a great word for today. We continually have an opportunity to go deeper with Christ if we will hear, if we will receive it, if we will Break free from faulty paradigms of thinking and embrace truth. When they heard this, they they embraced the truth. They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Presumably they were baptized in water. It doesn't say that. And when Paul laid hands on them, apparently at the same time this baptism happens, that's apparently what happened. We don't know for sure. He lays hands on them and there's a sign given. How does Paul know that they've really received the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. So those are always signs. Remember, signs validate a message and they validate a messenger. That's the purpose of signs. Signs and wonders are tools. We make signs and wonders the big deal. Signs and wonders were never the big deal. You don't see Paul running around trying to do signs and wonders. He did them in the course of his life. The big deal was living a holy life. And in the course of that, signs and wonders what happened. As the Holy Spirit sovereignly chose to make them happen. Paul wasn't looking to make them happen. The Holy Spirit was signaling when he would do it and when he wouldn't. Now there were about 12 men in all. So we don't know exactly how many. They're just saying about 12. And that's you know kind of like a, a sacred number, 12, 12 men. All right, let's come to kind of the seminal text I want to focus on for just a minute here. I want to, I've i titled this verses eight, nine, and 10, a better way to evangelize. I, I wanna suggest it's probably not only a better way, it's probably the best way, and probably needs to be viewed as the prominent way. Today, we don't think the way the text talks to us, the way, what it reveals to us. We think very culturally that evangelism is all about sharing your story of how you chose Christ. I think you need to lose that thought That's not a healthy thought. It's not a biblical thought. So let's see what scripture has to say for us. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. You see, that's always the message, the kingdom of God. Some received, but some hardened and would not believe, slandering the way. You see, Christianity is a way of life. They slandered those living as Christians, not people professing to be Christians, people living as Christians. They slandered them in front of the crowd. So Paul withdrew from them. That's interesting. You say, Paul, why didn't you fight him? Why don't you fight him here? Well, I'm trusting that the apostle Paul sensed that withdrawing was the right action. There are times when withdrawing is the right action. There are other times when you press in and you 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 argue, you debate, you fight, but there are other times you withdraw. You have we have to be discerning about when those times are. Taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, who is this guy, Tyrannus? We don't know much about him. Commentator F.F. Bruce has suggested some things. He suggested that Tyrannus had, a, had a, a lecture hall. And in that day where they lived, um, the cool of the day, mostly, particularly the spring and summer, maybe even early fall, was early in the morning to probably mid-morning. So he's saying that maybe from 7 to 11, Tyrannus probably had his own school going on there. But when it got hot, he suggests that, well, perhaps Tyrannus leased out the hall. And he leased it out to to Paul. Paul's looking for a place to have these meetings. And maybe Paul had the heat of the day, maybe like from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. each day, so like four hours. So it's during this time. Let's suppose that that Paul, during that four-hour period, actually engaged in teaching for three hours. Three-fourths of the time, he's teaching them truth. Suppose he did that for six days a week. For 104 weeks, that's two years. See, you take the Sabbath off. So it's only six days a week. That would mean he would lecture over the, or teach over the period of two years, 1,872 hours. Now, think about a typical professing Christian today. We might hear one hour teaching per week, maybe. And we, many times you don't hear that because the message may be 30 minutes or even 20 minutes. But if you hear one hour a week, Okay, that would be probably, that'd be pretty good. At that rate, it would take 36 years to hear 1,872 hours of teaching. Now, that's just, that's pretty amazing. I mean, this was a very compressed, focused time for two years. What does that do to somebody to be in that environment with the Apostle Paul, who's the chief spokesperson for Christ at that time? There's no one who understood the kingdom of God better than Paul. And he's going to spend two years explaining the kingdom of God. Hopefully you see immediately like, wow, there's got to be a lot to this. Because I've just kind of thought it pretty simplistically. No, it's very deep. It's very profound. It's got a lot of nuances. And the more you know the truth of it, the more it transforms you. So at the end of two years, These people are so infected with Jesus that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now, that's just amazing. You go back to the beginning of Paul's second journey. He wanted to go to Asia, and the scripture, Acts 16, says he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. He was not allowed to go to Asia. Ephesus is in Asia. So he had to go through it. And went on to Philippi, and, and then on to Berea and Thessalonica, and eventually Athens and Corinth, and then you know came back. And on his way back on a second journey, basically two years into that journey, he stops by to Ephesus, like the Holy Spirit granted him on the return to be able to visit Ephesus very briefly. And now, on his third journey, he's able to go back to Ephesus and spend two years indoctrinating this small group. I mean, how many leaders would take 12 and spend two years focused on them? I don't know that there be too many would have vision for that. Most people, if you're going to give me 12, I'll give you a little time. You give me a, a big group, I'll give you all the time you want, because we think differently from the word of God. We think about making a big splash. Jesus and Paul were about focusing on who the Holy spirit was working on infecting them so much that when they went out they infected everyone. And so now you have the evangelism of Asia happening through discipleship. Can you hear that? In the timing of God because Paul tried to evangelize it at the beginning of the second mission a missionary journey and the Holy Spirit said no because the Holy Spirit had this plan in mind. So we could see God has it all under control, the timing and the means and methods by which he will spread his word. He will do that if we will just faithfully obey and make disciples. Discipleship is the key to evangelism. If you don't have a disciple, you don't have an evangelist. I hope you can hear that. If you don't have a disciple, You don't have an evangelist. Discipleship is the only way. All right, let me just make a theological point and an application very quickly. I want to revisit the second blessing question. In the study of Acts 8, I discussed the bifurcation of the work of the Holy Spirit. That is his twin works of regeneration and his indwelling presence to empower Christians in sanctification. You know, we believe the Holy Spirit does that, does that. We also believe he empowers us for glorification. We believe he empowers all three tenses of salvation. Now, I don't think they understood that well, and they didn't have a way to really express that well and in that time, but we look back on it, and it looks like to us that there might have been a bifurcation between the start, the regeneration, and actually the empowerment then to, for sanctification. So we tend to believe there might be this second blessing thing. So the texts that mainly teach this, give credence to this theory are Acts 8 and Acts 19. So this is Acts 19, we've already talked about Acts 8, so I'm trusting you remember that conversation. So as we look at Acts 19, I've already mentioned to you that one of the things to look at is the way the word disciple is used. Um, That word um, means a learner it means literally to learn. It's rooted in the idea of learning for the purpose of endeavoring, for the purpose of doing, learning to be practical. We think of learning as theoretical many times. No, we, we should always learn so we can live better. So that's the idea. Now, in contrast, is didaskalos, which means a teacher. A teacher is someone who actually teaches those who are learning. So there's a contrast, a distinction, another divine distinction. Now, the question is, how is this word used? Is it, does this use used specifically in reference to Jesus, or is it a broader term? Well, we find that in Matthew 9.14, it actually talks about disciples of John. And then Matthew 22, 22, 16, it talks about disciples of the Pharisees. And then in John 9.28, it talks about disciples of Moses. So you can see that the word is used referring to disciples of many people. So it's not uniquely used in referring to disciples of Jesus. It is used of that way, but it's not unique. Okay, so that presents a challenge because the context in Acts 19 certainly looks like he might be talking about disciples of John the Baptist. So some commentators have been very strong in taking that position, the commentators who are, are prone to want to promote a second blessing idea, you know, they need the word in John 9, 1 to be referring to disciples of Jesus. That is those who have been, already been regenerated, they just haven't been indwelt. So that's the whole idea of the second blessing, but that doesn't necessarily seem to be the idea of What's what's going on here. So you have to stretch to get that interpretation. So this discussion about the discipleship is important because the second blessing theory basically is built on two texts. And if one, one interpretation is flawed, yeah, you're down to one text. So each each time you chip away at it, it becomes more and more complicated and difficult to support it. So in a prior discussion in Acts 8, I concluded that the introduction of the good news of Jesus to the Samaritans, and therefore the bifurcation was probably transitional, not normative. In other words, in that text, it appears there was regeneration, and it, it, the invoiling of the Spirit didn't happen until the disciples from Jerusalem came, and we they prayed and laid hands over them. There was a separation, and this had to do with Samaritans first receiving the good news of the kingdom of God. So there was that, but there was no confirming sign like speaking in tongues or prophecy. There was none of that. So that becomes a problem for, for him. If you're looking for a confirming sign, you don't see it in Acts 8. And yet the text in Acts 19, verse 1, the word disciple doesn't seem to be referring to disciple of Jesus, but a disciple of John the Baptist, in which case they were not regenerated. So when they're baptized by... Paul, presumably, he saw a mark of regeneration at, at some point, so he baptized him, and the Holy Spirit comes on him at that point. So it seems to be less of a bifurcation in chapter 19 than it was in verse 8. So you see, there are problems here with this interpretation. It's difficult, and we have to remember, as we're interpreting the book of Acts, we're in a transition phase. We're going from the established Old Testament into a new New Testament covenant, and we're just beginning to see what that means. And so Acts is transitioning. Anytime you make a transition, there are events that happen that are not necessarily normative, that are not going to continue. It's like forming an organization. You have organizational documents. You only do those one time. You file those documents and you've, the organization is formed. So likewise, there was one really one day of Pentecost, one first message one first ecclesia there's these starting points and they're not they're not reproduced many times so as we go through acts we have to recognize everything in acts is descriptive some of it is prescriptive what is prescriptive is what transitions the 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 formation period it becomes normative for all time so is the second blessing normative for all time is this is a bifurcation of the work of the spirit in regeneration and sanctification is that always how it happens well that's that's difficult in the case of Cornelius in acts 10 there was no bifurcation they were it appears that they were regenerated and dwell with the spirit all at once boom and there were signs that that's what happened so it becomes very difficult to hold to the second blessing ideas as com- as popular and common. I think it's more something that we want to be true rather than something we can really demonstrate from Scripture to be true. Although there is clearly, I think fairly clearly in Acts 8, a bifurcation, it appears to be more of a description of a transitional event, not a normative event. So let's talk now in our application about business as missions or what's called BAM. Billy Graham said, I believe one of the great moves of God is going to be through the believers in the workplace. He said that back in the uh, the latter part of the 20th century. And there are many people that agreed with him, many pundits. In fact, you can, uh, you can find those if you want in uh, Neil Johnson's book, A Comprehensive Guide to the Theory and Practice of Business's Mission in the appendix. He lists a number of people that make comments and agree with Billy Graham. There's a score of people that do. So there have been numerous models proposed for BAM over the years. Some focus on evangelism for or, for the organization within the organization, or evangelism outside the organization, like with vendors and suppliers. Others on evangelism of the customers, and there are also combinations of these models. So, what's the best model? How should we think about evangelism? Well, during the first 300 years of Christian history, the ecclesia. Now, when when I talk about the ecclesia. I'm talking about the true Ecclesia, not the the organizations that claim to be an Ecclesia. We have, in whatever city you're in, there is an Ecclesia. Jesus is building that Ecclesia, and it's in good order. It's going and developing the way he wants it to. There are locals expressions that claim to be part of that Ecclesia that can be absolute wrecks and can be chaos and confusion, all kinds of things. A local expression, someone that claims to be leading that, that may or may not be true. And with any local expression, there may be a few that are part of it. There are probably many. When you have an open door policy like we have today where anybody can come, there are probably many there that are not really part of the Ecclesia. So you don't really have a meeting of the Ecclesia. You have a, a basically a mixed meeting. So in the early church, they didn't do that. They didn't think that way. They viewed the ecclesia as an exclusive community of those who had truly been born again and had been, had evidenced that reality by transformed lives. So, if we put that kind of metric on us, we'd thin our crowds in a heartbeat. So, they didn't, weren't concerned about evangelizing the world the way we are today. So, <clears throat> They were, uh, there were no, uh, early on, there were no evangelistic organizations and no evangelistic programs. They didn't do any of the kinds of things we do today. Evangelism was a consequence of the testimony of the lifestyles of the early disciples, most of whom were occupied in the workplace. Most of the evangelism happened by living the reality of Christ in them, the hope of glory in the workplace. Church historian Alan Kreider stated this regarding the early Ecclesia model of evangelism. He said, the churches grew in many places, taking varied forms. They proliferated because the faith that these fishers and hunters embodied was attractive to people who were dissatisfied with their old cultural and religious habits. For the early Ecclesia evangelists was not based on words. They didn't run around trying to share their elevator speech. It was based on their actions, their lifestyle of living as Christians, living a holy life as true disciples of Jesus. It was accomplished by living in hope, never by hypocrisy. Today, mostly what we do is live the way we want to live, and then we give our elevator speech, and we think that's evangelism. Though that's called hypocrisy. If you don't live as a Christian, you have no testimony as a Christian. So when you speak words claiming to be a Christian, you are a hypocrite. Hypocrites are actors. You're acting, pretending. Once you live it, You have a basis for speaking if you were invited to speak. But that's always the best way. Don't force a conversation. Be invited to speak. So to live in holiness, you know, to live in hope requires holiness, and holiness is the byproduct of persevering through pain and suffering. See Romans 5, 3, and 4. Everyone who knows Christ comes to Christ from a lifestyle of sin. Everyone. We all come from a lifestyle of sin. Regeneration is the first step in the salvation process. It is being born again and now by the power of the Holy Spirit and given the capacity and the empowerment through the sanctification process to begin to be transformed into holy living. Sanctification validates regeneration. 1 John 2 3 through 6. Perhaps the early church was inspired by the model of evangelism through discipleship that Apostle Paul demonstrated in Ephesus where he spent two years teaching disciples every day. This teaching was probably far better than most Christians receive in a lifetime and it was compressed into two years which made comprehension and retention and accountability to it more efficient. The fruit of this training so impacted the disciples that they became contagious and all of Asia. Heard the word of the Lord, the discipleship model of Paul in Ephesus of daily teaching would be difficult today to do because of the time commitment. It would be take dramatic a dramatic sacrifice to be able to do that, but it dramatically transforms people, builds Christian holiness, producing more effective evangelism. The question is whether or not we're willing to pay the price to become rooted and grounded in Christ, and so. The fruit, would, if so, if we do that, the fruit might be more more like what was recorded in Acts 19.10. And then all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. If you want all of Texas to hear the word of the Lord, all of the United States to hear the word of the Lord, all of South Africa to hear the word of the Lord, maybe it starts with Christians really living as Christians. Perhaps a better way to execute BAM today is to follow the Pauline model, evangelism through discipleship, and so infect the followers of Jesus with truth. That they become contagious holy living reproduces holy living and only holy living can reproduce holy living so may the lord give us grace so that we can so live in jesus name amen